Okay, this is Adam with with the pizza. Hi. And this is the Cold Pizza Party podcast. And uh, this time we're going to talk about Trump, which is something we've been resisting doing for a long time. And I wish everybody else had also, because then we probably wouldn't be in this position. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely gotten so bored with him like early on that we really didn't want to talk about him. But obviously he like is the definitive like yeah. nominee now so i guess it's it's worth talking about and also i think one of the reasons we really want to talk about him is because the way that he's run his campaign and people have reacted to his campaign i think shows us some broader things about <clears throat> the country at, yeah. at large so yeah definitely talking about being bored by trump if you ever watched his speeches we tried to we had to turn it off because it was boring um, he didn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. It was boring and rambling and yeah. like meandering and yeah. it wasn't even like entertaining like, oh my God, this is so bad. It was like, I just can't listen to this. Yeah. There's this, you know, meme that Trump is ent- an entertaining political candidate and that's partly why he's doing so. Well. I think that's completely off base. I think that comes from people who never tried to watch a speech because they'd probably give up like we did. I think instead what's entertaining are the sound bites. You know, we want to talk about how First, how he won. And it turns out there was an article in Politico where after, I think it was like 2013 or 14, where a lot of Republican operatives came to Trump and asked him to run for governor. And he said, no, I'm not interested, but maybe you can help me out when I run for president in two years. So he was planning his campaign for a long time. And what he told them was... We're going to run a campaign completely on earned media. So we're not going to spend money on ads. We're not going to spend, we're going to spend very little. Maybe you can explain what earned media is briefly. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it just means that you get the like news to cover you as opposed to, like you said, buying ads, um, which is obviously like no matter what you want voters to see you and get your message, but it's a lot more meaningful when that's a news story versus, you know, paid for by the campaign for, you know, Lubitsa Senate run 2016 yeah. or whatever. Right. So when Lubitsa was an organizer, she tried to get groups to get attention, get earned media by creating news stories and things like that. It's like a little gimmicky almost, but you, most of the time. Yeah. But you're trying to basically make it so that people see your candidate on the six o'clock news as opposed to just seeing their ad during the six yeah. o'clock news, you know. Yeah. Or like when you deliver a petition to Congress and you have boxes and boxes of signatures, you could have emailed it, but you show up with the printed out paper to hopefully get news attention. Anyway, that's earned media. And when Trump told the Republican operatives that was his plan, they basically laughed at him. They said, you cannot run a presidential campaign on earned media. And well, he did. That's where we are now. Yeah, because like we're talking about earned media is extremely valuable, obviously, because it's like very natural and it it's like people will not just be able to fast forward through the commercial or whatever, you know, but at the same time, it's like notoriously difficult to get. That's why you tried to come up. Like I've even had times when people have talked about like putting um, to make those like petition signatures look huge, like printing one signature per page, you yeah, know, like yeah. things like that. Like people do a lot of, I mean, it's silly, but like people do that kind of stuff because yeah. that's how valuable earned media is that you right. want to like get that attention. Yeah. And that's why it seems so absurd to these political operatives that he would be able to run an entire presidential campaign on earned media. Yeah. But of course that is exactly what he's done. Like we talked about 
we tried to watch one of his speeches because it was on like we had tuned in to watch Chris Hayes mm -hmm. and it was on unedited without comment for yeah. two hours on MSNBC on like a Friday night at eight o'clock. And he was just clearly up there ad libbing. And you could see a bunch of people in the audience who are like pumped to be at a Trump rally are like on their phones. Yeah. You know, you're not paying attention the whole time. Anyway, it's interesting that you say you do silly things to get earned media because that's what Trump did. He did silly things like claim that Mexicans are mostly rapists and criminals crossing the border or saying we need to ban Muslims. And that's what's entertaining, quote unquote, about the Trump candidacy is these outrageous idea sound bites that are really successful ploys to get earned media attention from the news and he ran a campaign where the news media just covered everything he did and that's my bullet point number one for how trump succeeded that's my hypothesis number one yeah no i mean i think you're right on point i think other people have tried to do this in the past much less successfully like newt gingrich would say shit like he's gonna make a colony on the moon or food stamp president or whatever but donald trump i think he's done it a lot more successfully because the things that he says are sound really outrageous but also like sort of work with like confirmation bias so like they confirm most people's worst suspicions about the republican party like they're racist or they're really like war hungry i don't know things like that like i think one of the main memes that's come out of trump the trump phenomenon let's say is that that he's just saying what most republicans dog whistle you know yeah. or kind of say without saying it okay so the second bullet point in my hypothesis my hypothesis about trump's success is a bit more nebulous i'm kind of thinking out loud here in Trumpish fashion, I suppose. But um, running it on earned media, one thing he was able to do was not be beholden to the traditional moneyed powers that dictate politicians and what they what they do. And when we were listening to AFR a while back towards the beginning of this campaign, it became clear from what we were hearing that we see Republicans and we think they've been wildly successful during the Obama administration. Like they've stopped so much from going forward. At least that's what Democrats argue. But Republicans feel extremely frustrated. They feel like their politicians are not true believers, that their politicians make promises that they don't follow through on. So you have Republican candidates saying they're going to end the Fed, end the Department of Edu Education, cut the IRS, end abortion. And then when they're elected, these things don't happen. So really, the Republican base, they feel disenfranchised from their own leaders, yeah, if that's like, the right use of that term. Yeah, well, or at least like disconnected from them like yeah, they there's hate a lack mitch of McConnell. political efficacy yeah 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 they hate mitch mcconnell yeah i mean they they talk about him all the time and basically they see him as only out for himself and yeah. not really like uh sharing their values yeah you know that he's not really committed enough to being anti-abortion or whatever yeah and what really plays into that perception accurately is how bought out these politicians are right now it's obviously the same on the democratic side also so when uh so i'm from youngstown ohio and it's a rust belt city rust small rust belt city where you know all the jobs left in the 70s and it's historically democratic because of strong union membership but for the primaries and this confused me first of all a lot of democrats switched to be registered republicans to vote for trump that didn't really surprise me what did surprise me is that hillary defeated bernie in that area when bernie is clearly the representative who wants to do things for working class people on the democratic side and i think the what i've come around 
to think to explain that is the level of cynicism is so high that people just didn't trust Bernie. They didn't think that he could or maybe even would want to deliver on the kinds of things he was saying. So that's kind of my second bullet point. I think a lot of people turned to Trump out of cynicism and the lack of a viable alternative. So there's, you know, there's a lot of people arguing that what Trump is doing is appealing to the white working class. I think there's some truth to that, but it's not because of like the racial ethnic identity. It's not, it's not just because he attacks non-white people that people feel that way. They are frankly right to feel that way because for the last 30 years, no serious politicians have represented the interests of working people. And they see someone up there that's being attacked by the elites, being attacked by the media, being attacked by Democrats that they hate, and being attacked by the Republican leadership that they hate. So they instinctively feel, this person is on my side because the people that I hate hate him. And because Democrats have failed to offer, to articulate for 30 years, any alternative vision from Republicans that a lot of people who would have a natural, like Bernie's natural constituency, a lot of them have already left the party or given up and because they're so cynical supported Trump. Yeah, well, I mean, during the 90s, you have the, you know, new Democrats being led by Gore and Mr. and Mrs. Clinton, right? And they are pro-choice and whatever. But other than that, they're total Reaganites when it comes to their economic policy. I mean, they are absolutely conservative and they believe like that trade deals that ship jobs out are good for the economy. They believe in low wages. They believe in union busting. They have a special hatred for teachers unions. That's like part of their like founding philosophy is like busting the uh, teachers unions and make and privatizing schools and things like that. So absolutely like when you think like, well, why don't they vote for Democrats? Like, you know, this is a a union town and whatever. It's like because they've seen their jobs shipped out under Democratic administrations, trade deals signed by Democratic presidents. They've seen their wages be depressed during those administrations. And like you said, they offer no alternative because truly they do not differ at all, really, from the Republicans. Yeah. And again, the media thing plays into that. Bernie was not getting attention for his policies or for the things that should have deserved earned media, like having gigantic rallies. Instead, all the air in the room was sucked up by Donald Trump. So all you heard about Bernie was that he's a socialist, which already a lot of older, you know, former union members in Youngstown are not going to vote for. Well, that's what people say. I don't know. I think they would if you made the point that like, this is we can do this. Like, it's not that radical. (laughs) Well, I think it goes back to what you're saying about people being really cynical. And I think that that's also why you don't have people voting for Bernie Sanders is they want to feel like, oh, I knew he couldn't win anyway. Right. Or like I knew I I didn't get my hopes up. I'm no fool to think that this guy's going to come and change things for us. Things have been shitty here since the 70s. What? This guy's going to suddenly show up and make them better. No. Yeah. Uh, There's that kind of. Yeah. Definitely. And. You have this point that you make frequently, normally about candidates, where like the attacks on a candidate that stick are the ones that reinforce your beliefs that already exist about them. So like Lion Ted is a terrible, you know, it's not a pun. It's not anything really, but it's stuck because he's completely fake. So people just have the sense that he's lying to them all the time. So when the media says that, oh, you know, Bernie wants to give everybody health care and education and sure, all these countries in the world do it, but this is America and we can't do that Mm -hmm. in America. People believe that because it comports with 
the cynicism that they've taken on after yeah. 20 or 30 years of American politics. And it comports with everything they've seen thus far. We haven't done anything major or radical in this country in a really long time when it yeah. comes to like big, like the New Deal, right? I mean, yeah. and then you have like Reaganomics after that, which did radically change things, but it wasn't sold to people as being a radical change. It was sold as being very rational, practical. Yeah. Grownups in the room think this is the good idea, you yeah. know? But I also think if the media had talked enough about Bernie, even dismissively, it still would have helped him more than, you know, what we saw. Like, we heard a guy call into AFR early on in the campaign, right, who was a Republican, and said, you know, I'm, there's, okay, AFR is the religious radio station, and, and there is this huge debate between the people who run the station who are Cruz supporters, and most of the listeners who called in were Trump supporters, even though they're also evangelicals, right, which is super interesting. We could probably do an hour just on that sometime. Like, that tells you a lot about where the country is. But one guy called in and said, you know, I'm voting for Trump. And my biggest issue is, you know, I look around and I'm not doing as well at my age as my parents were. And I'm really worried about my granddaughter who's going on to college and is going to take on a bunch of debt. And I don't hear any candidate talking about that. But at least Trump says he's telling it like it is. So he didn't even know that Bernie was talking about college plans. Right. Well, we heard on the Huffington Post podcast a really similar Trump supporter who they were interviewing asking him like why do you support Trump and he said basically the same thing that he was worried that his grandkids were going to go into debt and he said on the Republican side like no one is like really even talking about that besides I guess Trump must have said something about this I don't remember it was a while ago but he said basically like you know Ted Cruz and all these guys it's just white noise like they never say anything about that that kind of stuff and they asked him well have you heard anybody on the democratic side address this concern and he said no they're always hiding and doing their debates on like the weekend and stuff so i don't even know what they're saying and it was like ah oh. <clears throat> like <laughs> i mean even i don't obviously we don't support hillary but even hillary clinton has more to say about college reform and and debt than the republicans and yet because they were so scared to like actually have her be exposed to people the media and to see people to allow people to see bernie's message they limited her own ability to reach you know anybody yeah so I don't know, basically that sums up my second bullet point is like people know what they're voting for. I don't, you know, it's not completely wrong to say, well, America's racist. These white people are racist. They're voting for Trump because they're racist. You know, there's some truth to that, but they're not voting for him because he's saying racist things, right? I, I like to take the attitude that people are not completely ignorant. And this there's a very common liberal notion, right? That people are just dumb, ignorant, uninformed. And if they knew what I knew, then they'd be liberals. They'd vote for Hillary Clinton. But that's just not true. People have differing opinions. They, actually, there are numbers breaking down the demographics of Trump supporters. And it doesn't matter if you have college, high school, or none of that. You probably still support Trump if you're voting in the Republican primaries. Only, and there's a great article on Jacobin about this, only the people who have postgraduate degrees and are Republican are voting not Trump. And it makes the argument that what we're seeing is like a split between the managerial petty bourgeois class of people who have college or or something like that versus, you know, MBA holders, doctors, lawyers, people who have postgrad degrees. 
So my second bullet point for why people are supporting Trump is because they know that politics is corrupt and that the politicians are not representing them, whether Republican or Democrat. And they know they can at least vote for Trump as a fuck you to Washington or whatever. Yeah, I think it is a little bit like of going back to that cynicism. It's like a way of saying like, well, it doesn't matter either way. Like I've been screwed over for like 30 years. So I'm going to do this vote that makes every I'm going to vote this way that makes everyone angry because it's like a it's like like let's blow this shit up kind of reaction that is obviously meant to express their dissatisfaction that's what the hosts on afr had so much trouble with because they're like we need to vote for conservatives who are you know true conservatives who are really staunchly Mm anti-abortion and pro christianity christian principles but their callers don't even care because they don't have enough faith that even the hyper conservative republicans that they've been electing actually represent those interests and they're not wrong yeah and because that it turns out that didn't matter that to them as much right they see the economy not doing well and they see politicians just being in the pocket of business even conservatives recognize that yeah definitely i think they see that the principled conservatives they've elected have by and large use that power to you know personally enrich themselves and they do well personally but that hasn't really led to any material benefit for the people who vote for them like their lives are no better because they voted for ted cruz meanwhile ted cruz is like enriching himself making sure that like oil companies or you know his wife works at like goldman sachs like working on deregulation and all that stuff ultimately leads to pain for the working class people who elected him like yeah. their lives are worse when you know banks are deregulated and the economy tanks yeah. <laughs> and that's why that's their biggest criticism of hillary obviously that she just used politics to enrich herself but that is also their criticism of mitch mcconnell and establishment republicans yeah. they think that these republicans um, are unwilling to stand up for true conservative principles because they would rather just keep their jobs so they make deals with democrats and things like that just to maintain power yeah okay one thing i wanted to talk about um a little more deeply that you mentioned is um you were saying you know that you like to think that voters aren't just dumb and easily duped or whatever and and also that like yes donald trump says racist things and that gets him a lot of attention and obviously all of the things that he said about like I mean, you name it, Mexicans, Muslims, whoever, are like extremely awful, (laughs) terrible things to be saying. And obviously there is, there are some people who are almost certainly voting for him because they think like he's brave enough to say what we're all thinking, you know, like. And you could at least argue that most of his voters are okay with that. Yeah, yeah. Although when you look at polls, like you shared a poll with me recently that asked Hillary and Bernie supporters whether they agreed with certain basically obviously racist statements like the Irish and... uh, Yeah, it was like, it was basically saying like, oh, the Irish and Italians pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and now it's up to black people to do the same. And if they're in poverty, it's their own fault. Yeah, and like I was, I mean... The Bernie supporters agreed the least, but I was still surprised that there were like any. I know. It was like 28% of Bernie supporters who agreed with that notion and like a slim majority of Hillary supporters who agreed with that. Yeah. So basically, my so you're point, saying it's not just Trump supporters who have racist views. Yeah, it's that uh, racism is really widespread, and it's no surprise that Trump gets attention for saying 
racist things, but I think it would be really wrong and honestly not very useful to just categorize the people who vote for Trump as just blatant racists and that that's the only thing that motivates them. But in the media, there's been this real glee uh, I think this cycle, whether it's looking at um, Trump supporters and labeling them as racist or Bernie supporters um, and labeling them as racist, like when he won West Virginia, there were a bunch of people who were just like, well, who cares what West Virginians think? They're all just a bunch of like dumb loser racists, you know? So I don't know. I found that like really, really interesting because it's been happening on both sides a lot where people who are expressing dissatisfaction with the way things have worked and saying that like voting for, you know, the obviously Trump and Bernie are very different, but still voting for the two yeah. most populist candidates or at least seem to be populist. Yeah. I would say like Bernie is like genuinely for the people and Trump is like cynically <laughs> running, but still that that those people are somehow fuck ups, right? That they're like losers, that the people who are saying that they're unhappy with the way things work, like, well, it's their own fucking fault <laughs> that they don't have jobs and things like that. And so that started to really make me think like um, like a while back, this guy, this like terrible guy, Kevin D. Williamson, who writes for like the National Review and other right wing publications. Is it Will Williams? I think it's Williamson. It's either Williams or Williamson, but anyway. It really doesn't matter. The internet likes to call him Fat Dracula. <laughs> I feel free to uh, look up Williamson, Kevin D. Williamson. Oh, it's okay. You know, so he, this guy has been for a while writing these articles where he says as much, basically says that like the white working class, like they're a bunch of losers and like, here's a quote. The best thing that people trapped in poverty in these undercapitalized and dysfunctional communities could do is move. Get the hell out of Dodge or Eastern Kentucky or the Bronx. So this is Kevin D. Williamson's. And he literally, the, the article is called, If Your Town is Failing, Just Go. And the subtitle is A Prescription for Impoverished Communities. So that's his prescription. Like, get the fuck out of your loser town, you loser. <laughs> right? Basically, what this started to make me and he by the way, he has like a ton. This is just one article and this is from like 2015. He has more recent ones that he wrote in March and May saying the same things where he like suggests that basically like people should be bussed out of their towns to like cities and that like everyone needs to just flee these like middle American towns that where like all the jobs have been lost and just move to cities and and I don't know, get jobs there, I guess. So in his, there, we would just have this like dystopian, like middle America that's like completely devastated and deserted yeah. in his, I guess, prescription for America. But anyway, my point is that when I saw all of a sudden these national review writers who normally champion the white working class, oh, they're the heart of America, they're the salts of the earth, they're pillars of the community, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, they were saying that these people are garbage because they weren't voting for the candidate. They weren't voting for Marco Rubio, right? Because yeah. these people don't give a fuck about, you know, conservative ideas like we have to privatize social security. Yeah, no. In fact, they... They, that's like the least of their concerns, right? They're much more concerned with like, how do I get a yeah. job right now? How do I change the material conditions of my life yeah. right now? They're opposed to privatizing Social Security, in fact. Yeah. So 
Anyway, so you have these um, national review writers turning on their their base, essentially. I mean, most of most Republicans are working class. They're not elite, you know, yeah. uh, re- Republicans writing at some, you know, magazine or whatever. And and then at the same time, on the left, you have these Hillary supporters who like hate the the white working class yeah. and they're racists and they're not worthy and like who gives a fuck about people in West Virginia who cares if we close all the coal mining towns down in this you know I mean Hillary Clinton pretty gleefully said that she was gonna put coal miners out of jobs which like I'm all for but <laughs> she was like then we'll just retrain them to do other things and it's like well if you're like a 50 year old man and this is all you've done your entire life or 45 or whatever like you don't have really that much time to like retrain and start a new job and what start from the bottom and work your way up and you know <laughs> and and there's there's no plan for for these people on the yeah. left at, at least as far as like the presumed democratic nominee is concerned right yeah. What are, what are they supposed to do? Like go online and pay a bunch of money to codeschool.com and become computer programmers? That's ridiculous. Yeah, they should disrupt coal mining. Yeah, build an app. Why, yeah. why don't you build an app, you lazy drug addled West Virginian? Yeah, and there's so much, like I'm telling you, in the media, whether it's the left, middle, or the right, there's a lot of glee in hating the white uh, middle class. And so that really made me think a lot about the flexibility of whiteness and what does it mean to be white? Because I think, I guess I'll tell you what I what, it, what I think first, <laughs> which is that basically um, these people are being, that the whiteness is a special classification that was given to workers, right? We've like, we, we know this. You can like look back at like our very early days as a country and whiteness didn't really exist. In fact, like, people were uh, like intermarrying sometimes with um, black people who sometimes were slaves, but like because there weren't that many women in the country, you had black women intermarrying with white men a lot, Um, Native Americans and white people intermarrying. I mean, basically they were, and, and all working together and organizing because they were a working class, right? Like they weren't landowners the way the um, rich English guys who like, you know, we think of as the founding fathers basically came with money. Like there were white slaves who were indentured servants. Yeah. So basically this whiteness is given as a classification to basically break up this emerging working class, essentially to give these white people something special to hold on to that makes them better than the Native Americans and the various, I guess we would say African-Americans now, yeah. although they came from lots of different places. Yeah, I, I remember, I don't remember the details as well as I wished, but I remember reading a really great article by Quinn Norton, who's an excellent journalist about the history of whiteness in Virginia. And at some point in like the early 1700s or mid they started passing laws explicitly giving rights to all white people. Um, so it's like race, whiteness, racism, they had to be constructed as ideologies. And all the way up to the Civil War, racism was changing and developing as a, as an idea. Yeah, and it's around the time that they give these special, um, the special status to white people that they actually make it illegal, make miscegenation is that the term right like they that they make it illegal for like um white men to suddenly marry black women because you have to create these these stratifications these lines police the color line you know that yeah 
that word was invented, miscegenation. Yeah. I think around the Civil War, either right after, during construction, re- during Reconstruction, something like that. It was created and codified in the law. Like it didn't exist as a word up to that point. Yeah. So. Basically, like, my point is that obviously, like, whiteness is constructed and it's um, meant to break up the working class anyway. And then now what I see is that you have these elite white people, media elites, political elites, essentially saying that this group of this working class group of white people, they essentially they're not white anymore, right? In the in the way that we think of whiteness as in America, is like whiteness is good somehow, like innately good and and something to like aspire to. Because if like if you think about the way we talk about, for example, black people, we talk, uh, uh, and obviously I mean like racist when I say. <laughs> say this but um, I think that these ideas permeate our culture like I said we are still super racist it's like surprising how honestly racist people are when you give them a poll with racist statements but (laughs) anyway so when we talk about like black people right um, there's this idea that like black bodies like because they they were slaves right they were made to do like the worst labor the hardest labor the worst jobs so there's this idea that like black bodies are for bad work and and black people are bad workers you know and then um and and i mean you can just kind of think of like how anything that you say that's like racist about black people also gets applied to this class of poor white people right like so bad workers for example lazy um dirty um drug addled right like all these kinds of ideas unfortunately they get applied to all black people in this country you know people have these like ideas about blackness that way yeah i think that we uh we were talking about this recently and we noticed that black skin for most americans immediately attracts to low class right that's why the harvard professor uh, a few years ago was arrested entering his own house they assumed he was breaking in because it was a nice house in a nice neighborhood but he's black which means he must be low class he must not have money there's no way he lives in this nice neighborhood yeah exactly so like low class can be a racialized uh conception yeah and what i think what we're seeing now is that like put really explicitly like we're now seeing these elites saying these white people they, they're not part of us. They don't belong with us. They're a different class. They're, I, I mean, like different <laughs> class, like in terms of like stratification, like they're, they are something else, yeah. you know? That's why we're using this term white working class to yeah. denote this specific group. Yeah. And, and the things that, you know, in like the Kevin D. Williamson pieces, like he talks about how they like cheat on each other. They're like, oh, so yeah. there's this idea that they're like immoral, which again, if you think about, racist ideas about blackness it's like they're hypersexual and you know they can't control their passions and and these kinds of ideas and they're all of these same things that are racist applied to blackness are also explicitly being applied by like national review writers to working class white people and are also being applied by you know supposedly sentimental liberal lefties, bleeding heart lefties to this white working class as well, especially when it comes to their drug use. Um, Also, the criminal justice system criminalizes criminalizes poor white people and gets them caught up in the same endless cycles of 
jail time, probation, jail time, probation. You can see it in uh, that documentary, Making a Murderer, mm-hmm. where his girlfriend, like, yeah, I mean, nobody should be driving drunk, but, yeah. you know, it happens, especially if you're not in a city where you can't get a taxi, you can't get a subway. You can't call an Uber. No. you if you if And if you're going to drink, like, if you're going to go to the bar, everybody is driving home, right? Yeah. So everybody is driving drunk. But anyway, you see these, uh, you see his girlfriend get recriminalized and recriminalized because she got a DUI. So then she's on probation and then she got busted on her probation because the police officers didn't like her. didn't like that she was dating this guy and the cycle continues. Yeah. Yeah. And so like we've established, I think now, like that this class, this group of people exist, they're hated on all sides. So, you know, my question then why? Right. And I think I have an answer, which is that when we look at like black people, especially like as liberals, but I would say even like probably most Republicans can say that a lot of the problems that black people have in terms of advancing in our society stem from um, systematic racism or just maybe just maybe the right wouldn't say systematic racism, but they would still say like there, there's racism in this country and that hinders black people to some extent from moving forward, right? So that fits really nicely and neatly into our narrative that America's biggest problem is racism. And then on, I think that on the left, you have the same thing, right? Where it's like, yeah, the you know, there's systematic racism, there's systematic violence against black people, which is all true. Um and again, that neatly fits into this narrative that um, racism is the problem. Okay. But well, I'm not sure exactly what you're saying. Are you saying like America is like a meritocracy yeah. and everybody could succeed except for racism? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Yes, okay. exactly. I'm glad you yes that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so, yeah, the idea is that like, oh, it's the, the problem. You often hear people say this, right? That like in America, I mean, I have I've heard Hillary Clinton Obama, Bill Clinton, so many people over the years say, we just have to um, guarantee equality of opportunity, but we can't guarantee equality in outcomes, right? Because then it wouldn't be a meritocracy, it would be socialist or whatever, right? Like we can't guarantee housing to people or guarantee jobs to people or guarantee health care or anyway, that's side note. But my point is, so why is there so so with black people, it's like we have a neat narrative about why they can't succeed in our wonderful meritocratic system. Right. With this white working class, there's so much ire, I think, directed at them and so much glee taken in hating them by the whites that have essentially succeeded in this meritocracy. (coughs) I think because we have to blame them as individuals and say they are lazy, they are drug-addled, they are immoral, they are dirty, they're trying to get a government check and cheat the system, whatever. Because otherwise, we don't have a neat narrative. We can't say they're not succeeding because they're white. Then we have to ask ourselves, wait a second, is the problem the system? Is it, in fact, capitalism that stops these people from succeeding because they're, you know, someone has to fall there has to be an underclass in capitalism right someone has to do the hard work like not everyone gets to just write national review articles for a living so i think with like with when we we can talk about systematic racism because when we look at race there's there's no problem with the narrative that america is a fair society but when we look at white people 
then we actually have to look at class. We have to look at like capital and the flight of capital and the breakdown of, you know, unions in this country that used to give these people some power in this society. And that is much, much harder to reckon with. You know, when we look at race, basically, we can exonerate capitalism, right? That's capitalism isn't the problem. It's racism. But when we look at the white people who aren't succeeding in this country, and not only who aren't succeeding, but who are in so much pain that they are like medicating themselves to death with alcoholism and oxycodone and yeah, various opiates, exactly. Then you have to ask a much harder question that that gets right at the heart of what is America and and is this the type of society we actually want to have? And and why doesn't this society work for people? And then we can look back even and think like, oh, wow, there's an opiate epidemic right now in the white working class as their jobs have been shipped out. And in the 80s, there was, you know, this crack epidemic in the black working class. Well, that's when their jobs were shift out right and we can start to see that there's like a much bigger connection here when it comes to like i said the flight of capital you know breakdown of unions basically lack of jobs Um, a lack of investment by the government in guaranteeing some outcomes, right? Like if we had some guaranteed outcomes, like a guaranteed job, guaranteed housing, or maybe a basic income, things like this, then maybe we could alleviate some of this stuff. But instead we have a government that has been deregulating the economy more and more and been more and more hands off in basically helping people. And so I think that that's what you see with this white working class. And that's why you have so many people on both sides who hate this white working class because they're like a pimple, you know, like they're, yeah. you can't ignore that they're there, but it's hideous. Like, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's interesting that you say um, if uh, if it's not racism keeping down the white working class, then you have to look at society and how it's constructed. Alternatively, right, you can blame individual moral failings as these exactly. people are doing. What's interesting to me about that is that's the same intellectual move people like Bill O'Reilly make about black people, you know. Oh, black people, and I hear this on AFR when they're talking about, you know, Ferguson, how too many black people were getting harassed with speeding violations, stops, traffic tickets, getting caught up in the system where they can't pay, so then they get jailed, and they just get arrested at higher rates. On AFR, they just say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. They broke the law. And they're getting arrested, implying that black people break the law at greater rates, including speeding violations and running stop signs. But to them, you know, they don't want to critique the society, so they put it all on individual moral failings, which syncs up with being a judgmental evangelical Christian. And it's so cool to identify liberals doing the same thing out of their smugness towards working class people. Yeah, and I think it also goes back to what we were saying like <laughs> before with like how neoliberals when it comes to the economy, they offer no other vision for what should be done to help these people who aren't succeeding in our country. They're not for strengthening unions. They're not for a- any anything that would be like like I talked like I said already, like they don't have any other vision basically. So we just get stuck and and it sh- this white working class points out the lack of ideas on both sides when it comes to this problem. I want to identify something slightly different. You talked about how liberal elites basically are saying like they're not the same type of white as us, right? I think it's a slightly different conceptual move. You know, one of the biggest problems with whiteness, we're talking about how it's socially constructed, right? The same way blackness is. And part of that is because there's literally no 
biological basis for race. You know, you take a black person and a white person at random, and they'll have more in common genetically than they do with other black or white people. So the but the biggest problem with whiteness is that we don't see it at all; that it's invisible to us. So even when people say we need to talk about race, they mean we need to talk about blackness in America. You know. And to some extent, Hispanic people. Whiteness never comes up as a race. So I think what ultimately is happening is that the liberal elites are starting to see whiteness, but only in other people. And they're criticizing other people for being white. Whereas I am just a smart individual, you know, and I'm not defined by my race. I don't even see that I have one. Well, yeah, I think you're exactly on point. I mean, we've seen this obviously with like people like Joan Walsh, a white you know, writer writing a book called What's the Matter with White People? And I'm sure she thinks like, oh, I'm being cute. It's tongue in cheek a little bit. But no, fuck off. At least say what's I'm so irritated by seeing liberals on Twitter calling out white people, white liberals on Twitter calling out white people. Yeah. Just say what's the what's the matter with us white people? Right. That's all. Just that's all I'm asking is recognize your own whiteness. That's the first step. If you don't do that, then you're not going to do anything. Exactly. But what they're doing, I mean, this happens too with like feminist guys, like, right, where they'll call out another guy for being sexist or or something like that. But like, um, or white people calling out other white people for being white people. Like, it's the, there's an implicit, it's honestly pretty narcissistic, but there's like an implicit self exoneration when you do that, right? Like, I'm not like you, white people. I'm not like you, misogynist man you know i'm better than that because but actually freddie devore had a great article did you read it too um where he talks about how narcissistic it is to get offended on behalf of a different like race or you know a gender um and and because it's obviously all about you again it's saying i'm better than Mm -hmm. other people but even more what's even worse is like he talks about co-opting the language and discourse that people with less power have created to be able to talk about those in power and like what is more um what's more appropriative yeah exactly yeah well yeah than a white person calling out white people yeah yeah you're using the discourse that like you know black intellectuals have come up with um or feminists have come up with or various like i said disempowered peoples have come up with to to talk about their experience yeah. and and to talk about the pain of their experience in America. And you're like taking that without any of the pain, without having to experience anything negative and using that, like, again, like I said, to exonerate yourself, to, you know, put yourself up higher than other people. Yeah. And it's really pretty, pretty it's, gross. <laughs> it's a really similar use of race to what Bill Cosby said about black people, which was basically that, implicitly yeah pull your pants up you know basically stop acting black yeah and just just get an education and basically act more white so the liberal elites that are calling out white working class people for their behaviors and cultural norms are doing the same thing right stop doing this stop being white basically right well there's like a sense that yeah i mean like feminists um, like especially in the 90s did that too right like Hillary Clinton cut off her hair put a pantsuit on to be taken seriously right yeah, like yeah. you know it's like I, I can't be feminine and be taken seriously I had to adopt the the dominant view of what is a serious politician and that's a man and I need to make myself as most like a man as I can you know except I don't think they 
I, I don't think they recognized it that way. They just saw themselves as diminishing their feminine aspects, right? That's that's what we've been talking about lately when we talk about, you know, the 1970s feminism of getting women into the workplace. People didn't realize how normative that was. How capitalist. How Yeah, how capitalist. And, but, and very devaluing of women's work. Yeah, exactly. Instead of saying we need to value motherhood, we said women aren't only mothers, they can work. And now we have a world where women are mothers who work and do the mothering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, because we didn't raise up the value of that work of like like raising children, yeah, for example. Yeah. And so you have women remain the second class citizens. And so, again, women are given that lower yeah. work and are expected to be the, the main people doing yeah. that lower work. Because why would a man who makes more money yeah. want to do this? Yeah. So now we have women in the workforce, oftentimes the primary wage earners for their family. And now we're fighting for maternity leave. Right. Where if we had valued maternity from the beginning phyllis schlafly was not wrong feminism to some extent was attacking traditional notions of what it means to be a woman instead of valuing them and instead of um we could have argued for paternity leave right we could have valued motherhood and said you know also men need to be more like women in being mothers and nurturing towards their children so let's give them paternity leave Instead, we said women need to be more like men implicitly without realizing it. They need to be in the workforce. And now we're trying to undo, you know, yes, that's a positive thing, but it caused some damage. And we're trying to undo that damage instead of valuing women's work in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this happens a lot, right? Like uh, where you had, I think, a, a, a big push and pull for a long time between women who were like, no, you need to adopt like I said like what is the dominant way of being so maybe like in business being aggressive yeah. you need to be bold whatever or if you're a politician being more like yeah. yeah yeah exactly and and I think what's really interesting too is that then you had women on the right reacting to that and then so you have like Sarah Palin and she shows up on the scene and she's wearing like a fitting you know skirt and um, she has long hair and she wears makeup and everyone agrees that she's sexy and she talks really proudly about being a mama bear and she's like putting her womanhood on full display and that's where she's like seeking her power from right like she says like I'm strong because I'm a mama bear I'm not yeah. a woman who has to like hire a nanny and hide the fact that she ever had children in order to be seen as strong the way frankly like I think women like Hillary Clinton did and so you have these different ways of being a powerful woman and you know I think I'm not saying like necessarily even that one is better than the other because I think that there are a multitude of ways of being a woman you know I, I certainly remember when I was younger though like really looking at these different types of feminism and trying to figure out what what I believed and what I wanted you know and I realized that for me the idea that I would somehow subjugate like or like suppress my femininity in order to be like taken seriously or you know not wear not wear skirts or not wear makeup in order to be seen as like you know a serious worker or serious student or whatever was just uh, it it didn't really make sense to me that that would be like a feminist the best feminist tact like for me at least you know it was like no we need to expand what feminine what being feminine can mean um, and that it doesn't mean that if I wear like a skirt and lipstick that I'm like a flighty girl who like can't have a serious thought in her head like so yeah so I don't know I think we've gotten a little off track with like where I can bring it back a little oh bit. okay well uh, so I think I earlier I said Phyllis Schlafly was not wrong I should have said she wasn't 
a hundred percent wrong, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, He's and I mostly like mostly a terrible person. <laughs> I know the idea that like a powerful, educated woman would attack other women about getting educated and getting power was so, it's so ridiculous. But I like the idea of repairing her image and especially repairing Sarah Palin's image as potentially feminist uh, representations of women. I like that project. And like, there's a lot to be had from actually listening to the other side and engaging with the other side and not just writing them off smugly as ignorant, whether we're talking about white working class Trump voters or, you know, conservative evangelicals. Yes, I disagree with them almost completely, but it's still worthwhile to hear their concerns and it sheds some light on some things that you're missing. And it's, I think it's also worthwhile to ask, why are they be, being depicted that way? As yeah. is the you know case with this whole thing of why I wanted totally. to ask, what's up with everybody hating the white working class? You know, yeah, like I think true. we we see a much broader and more informative picture of America when yeah. we ask ourselves this question. You know, yeah, totally. I know it's not cool to quote Jijek because he's not cool anymore. But like, I was reading an intro where he's he's saying something about like ideology is most apparent when it's most invisible, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, yeah. Like you need to look for those those things like why do we attack white working class people, right? What is the function of it for us? It's not it's not just what is it about white working class people that makes us attack them, it's what is it about us that we need to attack them. Yeah, no, I mean I think yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to have this discussion. So yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed it too and feel like uh it was worthwhile and that maybe uh, you can have a little more empathy for white working class people, even if they are racist. more likely to be racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. I got really fired up. Yeah. <laughs> and have check our day. Facebook page. Leave us a review on iTunes or something like that. That's cool. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll write some fake reviews on there. <laughs> or you could uh, save us the trouble and write some real reviews. We should, I guess, like say that so that. Uh, people other than our friends and family find this podcast i'm always really mm-hmm. surprised when i look at our stats and i see like that someone like in england or somewhere found us i'm like how oh, like yeah. we don't do anything to promote this yeah. but if you wrote a review if you liked us um that'd be cool and maybe more we could have more yeah. of a base in great britain i don't know <laughs> <laughs> and if you check out our facebook page we've been recommending some other podcasts to check out maybe we'll start linking to some articles and stuff Maybe I'll learn how Facebook works and actually use it, and uh, I can start sharing some stuff on there, too, and we can write some thoughts throughout the week. Yeah, and also, you know, we do really want to um, have, like, people who, especially because most of you, like, are our friends and family by and large, like, um, you know, we're, like, interested in broadening out the discussions and actually, like, having people respond and continuing the conversation, as they say. Uh, Yeah, feel free to do that. Just, like, respond to, like, I don't know where we posted the link to this and, mm-hmm. and tell us what you think and tell us if you think we're full of shit, but yeah. ideally be a little nice about it. Cause you know, <laughs> we're sensitive. All right. That's it. Bye. Bye.